Now the lounge is full of farmers for the seven. Hey everybody, welcome to the Rocks Across the Pond Curling Podcast, coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee. Joining me as always on this Labor Day, at least here in the U.S. and in Canada, is our Professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft in Southampton, England. Jonathan, how are you doing today? Ah, Doing pretty good. We don't have the day off, so a bit jealous there. Uh, just got back from, uh, coaching up in Sterling, Scotland over the weekend. So good to be back on the ice, uh, and getting ready to go for the season. Awesome. Uh, so we have, as you mentioned, you, you went to the, the training center there in Sterling and we have a very British curling heavy podcast here today. And we have a guest, uh, Lisa Farnell from there in England. Jonathan, do you want to introduce Lisa and bring her on to the show? Yeah, so Lisa Farnell's the skip of the English women's team this year. She won the championship in England in February. As you'll kind of pick up pretty quickly, she from her accent, she's not originally from England, but actually moved here from Canada a few years ago and formed uh, a women's team two seasons ago. And so has won the English championship the last two seasons. Uh before that, she played competitively on Ontario, uh, won, I think, the world... When did you win the junior championship, Lisa? Uh, the Ontario juniors in 2006, so a while so ago. A while ago, okay. A while Didn't, ago now, yeah. <laughs> so 2006, uh, and uh, play, I think played pretty competitively kind of since then in Ontario before moving here, what, five years ago, Lisa? Or So I've been here for almost four years now, yeah, and um, definitely been playing for probably closer to 20 years than 10, uh, which dates me a little bit. But um, yeah, played in the Ontario circuit through juniors and through the women's play, played on the World Curling Tour uh, circuit uh, in Ontario for a number of years, skipping pretty much the whole time. And uh, job opportunity brought me over to England. And then I, once I moved here and learned that, you know, I became eligible to play for England, decided, well, might as well try the game over here. So that's how I kind of got introduced to curling over in England, which is a bit different from curling in North America, but uh, it's been really good. It's been really awesome. So, As the English champion, you will be uh, playing in the European Championships, which is later on this fall. The Euros are kind of early, right? They're uh, middle of November, I think? Yeah, middle to end of November, which is kind of a bit of an awkward spot, actually, because it's kind of the beginning of the season for a lot of players. So. Mm-hmm. It's kind of helpful, but a bit weird that we have our playdowns for the English Championship in February every year, and then that gives you kind of through the summer to to plan. So yours has been on my mind now for a couple of months, and I still haven't even been on the ice yet um, for the season. So it's going to be a quick jump to try and prep for it for November. So you'll be you'll be playing in the the B division uh, of Euros with the goal of making it to European A's. I'm sure a lot of people here in North America don't really know how that works. Like how what what is your path to getting to the European A's or even representing England at a World Championships when you're in that that B division there at the Euros? Yeah, well, I, first of all, let me say that I had no idea how it worked until I moved over here. Uh, And even now, I still barely understand it. And I understand that they're looking to change the whole process again 
So take everything I say with a grain of salt uh, for now. But the idea is that there's so many countries in Europe that are part of the Eurozone um, that is split into an A group, a B group, and a C group. And so every year, the top teams are in the A and middle and B and, and bottom and C. And the top two teams from the B pool will move up to the A group for the following year. And the bottom two teams from the A and the B division will both drop down to the C group or to A to the B and then B to the C. You, you get how it works. Um, and so for us, the big thing is if we can come top two in the B division this year, then that puts us in the A division for next year. Uh, obviously we'd like to avoid coming in the bottom two of the B because that would put us in the C division for the following year, which we don't want. Um, but then there's also this like secret challenge series that they run every year, which basically allows, uh, the winner of the B pool to play against the seventh place A pool team for the last spot to get to Europeans. Now, if it's the seventh place in the A pool, or maybe sometimes it's the eighth, depending on the host nation of the world, it gets a bit tricky. But the idea is the last, most qualifying spots for Worlds come from the A division, but that last qualifying spot you get to play against the winner of the B division. So for us as Team England in the B group, if we show up, um, you know, ready to play in November, and if we can, if we can win the B group, come winner, then we get to challenge um, an A team for the last spot at Worlds. So. Goal number one, come top two and get to the A group for the following year. Goal number two is if we can possibly get to the Challenge Series and win it, then that could put us in the Worlds for 2019, which would be awesome. So how evenly matched is that B, you know, once you get outside of that that A group, how evenly matched are the teams there? Because looking at the women's division last year, uh, it looks like you finished a game out of the playoffs and the team that you finished behind uh, Una Kausta's uh, Finnish team, uh, actually wound up winning the B group, and that was a team that you beat in the round robin. So how evenly matched are those teams uh, once you get outside of the, the, the top European teams, I guess? Yeah, I think there's, there's um, a pretty solid field of pretty evenly matched teams that are a couple steps behind kind of the big Olympic contenders, um, you know, a couple steps behind kind of Sweden and Scotland and stuff. And so we're, as England, we're kind of trying to fight in the middle of that pack. And, and so I think the, the B group and certainly the maybe the, the bottom couple teams in the A group every year that swap back and forth, they're all pretty evenly matched. And I, I mean, I say this, quite frankly, being a pretty new player in this European pool, I still don't really know uh, all the teams and I don't really know all the players. But from my experience, having, having played the Euros once and I've played a couple of European spiels too, um, there does seem to be a, a big pack of fairly evenly matched teams that are all fighting to get those last couple spots into Worlds. So I would love to be in that hunt uh, this year for sure. How, how would you compare the fields that are you know below those you know those big European teams that are going to go play in the Olympics and get a lot of funding, but you know that below that level, like say from teams seven. Uh, on down uh, in the European, how would you compare them to uh, the teams that are that are playing in Canada and all the in all the big spiels? How do they how do they compare to them? Well, I mean, I think it's a tough comparison to make. Really, um, my biggest experience coming over here is just that the whole culture of the game is completely different over here. In that, you know, in Canada where I grew up, every small town you'd go through would have a curling club. You know, every weekend there'd be some curling on TV. Curling is a much bigger sport in Canada. There's mm -hmm. way more people who play it. And so that just drives the competition way up. And so, you know, the, the top Canadian team is probably on par with the top European team for sure. But then 
the Canadian teams, there's just so many more that I think after you drop off the first couple teams in the European field, you don't quite have the same pool of support. So I think, I think kind of the average European team is probably not as strong as the average competitive Canadian team um, for reasons, you know, that it's, it's harder to get ice time. It's harder to get competition. um, And all these things kind of give you game experience. So it has been a bit. And I mean, having said that too, like our team, me personally coming from Canada, where again, I had access to ice all the time and access to, you know, world level competitions every weekend that I wouldn't have to drive more than a couple hours to, to go to. And now being over here on this side of the pond, it's, it's hard to find practice ice. It's hard to find competitions. It's, it costs a lot more money. It takes a lot more time. So um, I think the, the general pool is not as strong over here in Europe. And I think there's pretty good reasons why. So how, how, how far do you usually have to travel to get to practice ice then? It's about an hour each way for me to get to the, the rink out here, um, which is actually not bad. And I don't really mind doing that during the week. Um, but uh, the new rink that's been, just been built up in the north oh. of England, that's about, I think, four and a half hours away. So it's mm-hmm. got ice right now. So my only option for practice right now is a four and a half drive up north. But in October, we get the ice that's only an hour away. So hopefully I'll get some, take advantage and get some practice ice. But um, the other thing too is that I find that it's, you don't necessarily get open ice and open practice ice and league play and stuff. Because a lot of the the curling rinks out here, they kind of do um, kind of beginner style or like parties and things like that, rather than investing in, in leagues and people who know how to play the game. So a lot of the ice time is kind of, rented out for uh, a couple hours at a time to groups who want to just just kind of have some fun on the ice so it's actually gets pretty busy especially on kind of friday evenings and weekends and things like that so trying to get time where there's open ice is not always easy especially with the olympic uh uh television broadcasting that kind of got it on everybody's mind so and then how tough is it for you to get practice time with your teammates virtually impossible um to be to be completely fair now one of i'm in a bit of a unique situation in that one of my teammates actually lives in canada full-time so she's eligible yeah she's eligible to play for england because um her family's english and her mom uh, was born here and grew up here so she's she's an awesome girl her name's victoria i i met her back in canada and then only after i moved over here did i realize she had uh, eligibility so she's um obviously put in a ton of ton of hours of committing to us in terms of she's flown over here a bunch to play at our national championships and for Europeans and stuff. But when it comes to practice and spiels, it's, uh, it's not going to happen. Last year we ended up the three of us who live over here. We went, we went back to Canada and we did some practices and we, um, did, you know, a couple spiels, which was really great. Um, but I don't think we can make that happen this year. So I'll, uh, I, myself, I'm going back to Canada for a couple of weeks, um, in early October. So I'm going to hook up with Victoria there and I'll get to throw some rocks with her. And our coach is actually Canadian as well. So I'll, me and Victoria and our coach, uh, will get to, you know, get together a little bit. And then me and my other two English teammates over here, we'll, we'll, we get together as often as we can, at least once a week. Um, we'll be getting together once we have practice ice, but we do rely a lot on, email and Skype and just being organized with all four of us being in very different places. Um, so it is, it is tough. Sounds like me trying to podcast with Jonathan on a regular basis. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's, uh, it's not ideal, but, um, you know, we, we make it work and we, as long as we all enjoy what we're doing, 
it kind of makes the effort, you know, not seem so bad. So, you know, seems to be working for now. So we'll keep it rolling. So how is, how is English curling, um, and British curling, you know, how, how is English curling kind of viewed from the, the British curling perspective? Cause they also encompass, uh, uh, Scottish curling, you know, is it, you know, is it seen as just an afterthought or are you guys given the same opportunities that a lot of those, those teams that are in the British curling program are given? Uh, no, we basically, I think all the funding and stuff is separate yeah. for Scotland and England. So sadly we don't see any of that being English athletes. We, not to say that we don't get, we definitely get funding from, uh, English curling association, which are as generous as they absolutely can be to help support, um, the English teams. But at, at the end of the day, a lot of these curling associations make their money off of membership fees and there just aren't a lot of players in England. So the pool of resources for English curlers is not as significant as the pool up in Scotland. And um, the, the overarching British curling, which are really geared toward the Olympics, they typically won't look at you until you're an Olympic contender. Um, so sadly, that does not include me right now. Um, so most of our funding comes basically out of pocket or from uh, sponsors who, if they're generous enough to, to help support us, which we were lucky enough to get at least a couple. Um, but other than that, it's it makes it a bit tougher when you have to kind of fly to go to competitions more often than not over here. Um, All right. So what will your what will your couple months here leading up to Euros look like from a curling standpoint? Well, as I mentioned, we get our ice at our local rink over here basically the first week of October. And so we have a pretty good plan set out um, for all through October and November. Um, we as a team have kind of sat down and said, okay, look, we all have lives. We all have different priorities. How can we make this work? Especially with, with factors like one of our players being overseas and a lot of, again, competition's not, not super easy to get to. So that a bit more planning goes into that. And we have, um, some practices that are already booked into everybody's schedules, uh, that we're going to get some detailed practice plans for. And we're going to do that once a week, every weekend, uh, leading up to Euros at the end of November. We've got um, a Bonspiel in Latvia that we're playing at the end of October, which is going to be really good. We played in it last year, and it has a lot of the same teams that we see at Europeans, so it'll be a really good one. Um, and then there's a couple of there's a couple of little local competitive leagues that are in England um, weekly, and then also we've got kind of a once a month on Saturday type league where. A few of the, the competitive teams in England all get together and, and basically give each other a bit of competition. I know Havercroft is going to come out for the uh, the Saturday League that we've got in November, so maybe I'll get a chance to play against him. Uh, we'll see. And uh, aside from that, though, that's that's pretty much all we can make work is just and, and practicing whenever whenever there's open ice. Basically, I'll be calling the rink every Monday to say, "Hey, what do you have open this week?" And I'll I'll make the trip down as often as I can, but. Um, that's it. And hopefully that'll be good enough to, to gear us into euros and give us a fighting shot at the top of the B. What's the, uh, what's the record between you and Jonathan when you guys play in that league? Ooh, that's a really good question. Ooh, that is a good question. I know question. I was, cause I think, Hmm. I know I'm two and one against Brayden, who's my teammate. And I, I hold that over him. And I, then, uh, but I don't know about Lisa. I'm pretty sure I'm. I'm pretty sure I'm. I'm winning in the tallies. Although I know the last time we played each other, I'm pretty sure you guys won, because Greg uh, Jonathan Skip oh. made a comment to me about how he finally got me or something like that. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, but I actually I can't remember. 
but I know because that was the um, the last time we played each other was probably gearing up for the. Um, oh, we won that February. one. No, we beat was, you, we beat you in the pre match. I remember that for sure. The, yeah, yeah, the the February um, yeah. uh, gearing up for the February championships. Yeah. I remember because I was I was really mad about that because I think I had a shot to win or something. I can't remember, and now it's all gone. But yeah. Anyway, anyway, you bested me. It's fine. Right, we were playing three man though. You know, we're playing three man every time. So. Yeah. So that that kind of transitions into our Jonathan Havercroft Professor of Peel segment because we did want to since we had Lisa on the show we do want to kind of talk about how competitive teams plan out their season. Um, and when they're when they're trying to peak, and this isn't just for you know if you're one of those elite level teams, we want to talk about how a team that is gearing for say a club nationals in the U.S. or club net, I forget the sponsor that has it now in Canada, but that's uh, but basically Canada's version of of club nationals, and then for you guys the English championships. You know how do you plan out your season? to try and peak and make those events when you aren't a elite level team with funding. So Lisa, you kind of talked about how, what your team's going to do. Jonathan, how would you kind of suggest that teams plan out their season as we get into curling season now? Well, so I think step one is you got to pick out um, what your target competition is. So I'll, I'll just pick on my junior team that I coach because we've we've actually done two summer sessions and done a lot of planning. So that team's in the World Junior B Pool. So our our big event's January, first week of January in Loya, Finland. And we've, you know, we're actually already going. So we, we booked ice up at the new facility in Preston mid-August. And then we were lucky enough to get an invite up to the National Curling Academy uh, in Sterling. Uh, and we're up there this weekend as well. And so we've already been doing a lot of on ice and off ice stuff and a lot of uh, like technical work. And then uh, kind of, we're the same boat as Lisa is though. We've got no ice now until when the rink opens in October. So they've kind of got a month off of dead period. And then we have a plan to basically practice once a week, uh, right up through worlds. And they've all committed to do that. And then we've picked out basically a bond spiel a month. And again, it's, you know, growing up in Montreal, I could, as a junior, I could probably easily just around Montreal play two bond spiels a month, no problem. But for us, we've got to travel. So we're going, uh, two bond spiels up in Scotland. And then there's a smaller bond spiel at the rink. Um, and we've kind of picked out different tier bond spiels. So we've kind of got one stretch bond spiel that's kind of really high level. So that's the European junior curling tour event. And their goal in that is just, just win a game. Uh, and then there's a, what's called the Asham slam under 21, which is kind of the Scottish junior curling tour. So perhaps a step down. So, there they're trying to they last year they won one game, so they want to win two games at that spiel this year. And then they're the defending champs in uh, the Kent and Sussex Bond spiel, and they want to try and defend their title there. But that's a, a step down in terms of level of play. So they've picked out a set of events that kind of hopefully build them uh, up to world Bs. And then they've set a goal there not to win the event. That's the other thing that we talk about with our teams is uh, kind of setting attainable goals. So they're all still pretty young for juniors. They're 17 and 16. So um, we had a long chat about this, but they ended up saying, okay, their goal this year is to win three games. So last year they won two games in the B pool. So they're like, let's just try and win one game more because they have two new players and they're a bit younger than last year. That would be kind of a significant progress. So 
step one is kind of pick out your events and uh, and kind of set your goals for the team. Uh, next, I guess I'd say next, you kind of got to think about um, uh, kind of how you're going to train. And so we've broken our season up uh, kind of like technical stuff. So in the off during the summer sessions, we're doing a lot of technical work. And then during uh, the first part of the season, their primary goal is just to get really comfortable with their deliveries, with their new technique we've been working on over the summer. And then starting in November, we're going to kind of really focus, shift the training more towards uh, kind of team-based drills and then competition scenarios. So that's kind of how we're structuring the, the training program for the, for the season. Lisa, you mentioned that one of your teammates is obviously really far away from where you are. So what, how do you kind of, as a team, talk about what you're going to work on practice-wise if you have a teammate that isn't in your town or, you know, your work schedules don't work out and you can't practice together? You know, how, how are you communicating on what we're going to work on and what the, what the goals are when you are able to get practice time? Yeah, well, I think the first thing for us especially is to really understand what those limitations are. So, like, obviously the obvious one of Victoria living uh, over in Canada um, is, is obvious, but everybody else, you know, I have a, a pretty demanding job and so does my uh, my vice, Sarah, uh, versus Neve, who maybe has a bit more time. Nowadays, she's just uh, graduated university. So understanding, you know, who can come out middle of the week, who can come out on weekends, what, what are the limitations? And I know from early on, because Sarah has pretty unpredictable work, she basically said, look, guys, I can come out anytime as long as it's on a weekend. So we, as a start, we said, okay, well, then let's work with that. And we, we've booked in practices that kind of work around her schedule to make sure that we always have every single weekend something booked for us. Um, Victoria, obviously, in Canada has, has different access to ice. She's got more access to ice, but of course, by herself. So she's going to actually work with our coach. Uh, who's over there, he's going to meet up with her a couple times and give her a couple specific things to work on. Um, and then it'll kind of be up to her a little bit just to run with herself versus the three of us at least being together. Our coach can kind of give us some drills that we can work on uh, with the three of us. But at least kind of knowing everybody's limitations, we were able to kind of plan and say, look, obviously it's not ideal. We love to be you know together all the time. But here's what we, ha- you know, let's not think about what we can't do. Let's think about what we can do. And let's build these plans that can work for us. And then once we kind of have that, then we, you know, at least have a roadmap that we can walk down. And so that's kind of how we've approached it is basically just trying to optimize the bits that we can do. And um, we do have a couple of, of, uh, of good subs that we call on fairly often over here when we need, when we need another player, because uh, we do play a lot of three man events. Um, but we do have a few subs that are kind of on call, which is really great. Um, but all that stuff, you kind of, you have to plan. Um, and so that's, I think the big thing for us is for the last several months, we've kind of known exactly what the plan is moving forward. Cause it's, it's a lot more difficult for us to kind of say, Hey, let's just go grab a practice tomorrow. Um, so it's, it's the biggest thing is basically just about planning in advance. I think. Jonathan, from a coaching standpoint, what advice would you give someone if they are that player that, you know, work schedule or, or distance makes them practice alone? You know, what, what mentality do they need to have and what advice would you give to them? Um, you know, when they're playing, you know, let's say, you know, when they're able to get their practice ice, or let's say they're playing in their own clubs, uh, league games to kind of prepare for what you're going to do with your, your semi-competitive team or fully competitive team. Uh, I think like I, I do a lot of solo practice and so, I think the key is when you're practicing, go in with a plan. Uh, and I've, I mean, I've kind of got a set of 
drills that I do just kind of solo ones. And I was talking to a sports psychologist last year and he kind of confirmed this is good from a sports psychology standpoint is do drills where you're keeping yourself accountable. So let's say, you know, one of my go-to basic drills is just I'll throw eight stones down and see how many I can get top of the rings. Right. And he's like, write that down and then keep a, basically get like a little notebook. And every time you're out, do the same four or five drills and try to beat yourself. So you basically you're, you're putting a bit of mental pressure on yourself and you've got a, a target you're always aiming for. Uh, so I think kind of a, having a set of kind of a plan when you go to practice, I think a lot of people that practice, uh, say the more kind of recreational end of the sport kind of, I observe that often they're just kind of throwing rocks up and down without much of a plan or not really working on something. So that's the first thing I think. If you're kind of like with Victoria's case, if you're even if you're solo, but if you have access to someone, preferably like a certified coach, but someone who can kind of just be a good pair of eyeballs to take a look at your delivery and offer a bit of pointers, that's always great. Um, and I think that the key is just to try to do it as regularly as possible, right? So, um, you know, the, the, at the National Curling Center, they're pretty explicit. Like all their kind of on-program players are expected to practice seven times a week uh, for an hour. So seven at one hour sessions a week, that's obviously kind of great if you're, you know, that's your job, but for, for kind of more, you know, for more, uh, you know, for those of us with jobs, right. I think practicing once a week, if you kind of get into that habit and that's feasible for you, that that'll actually improve your game a lot over the course of the season. Right. So, and I think it's for person, I think it's better to practice regularly for less time. So let's say all you can grab is 30 minutes uh, before your league match at your local club or 30 minutes on a Sunday afternoon or evening when the ice is open. Um, but just doing that every kind of, you know, every week, just throwing 16 to 32 stones, say with purpose, that's, that's going to help you kind of improve a lot more than just sporadically and with not much of a plan. What are some of the things that you have your junior team work on? Um, you know, maybe if it's even during a game, you know, when they're, when you get away from practice ice and you are in that competitive environment before you're getting to your, your goal, which for them would be, uh, your, your junior B's, um, you know, what are you working on during yeah. either from one game or one particular event? Uh, so we, we like before every game, we, we have a pregame meeting and I have each of them set what I call a performance goal for the game. And so it's, 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 it's actually goes a lot better if they tell me what they want to work on. Like I, I always tell them I can give you pointers for what I think you might want to work on, but I find they're actually really good at identifying um, where their problem areas are kind of on their own. And I think it goes a lot better for the athlete if, if they're kind of setting the goals themselves and I'm offering tips or feedback. So I have each of them kind of identify one thing they want to work on, and it's the, I talk about it being kind of performance versus outcome. So obviously we want to make all our shots. We want to win the game, but we set those issues aside and instead we focus on little things. So if they're saying as a team, for instance, they're not communicating well, then I'll say, okay, well, what can you do about that? And they may say, okay, one of our goals if we're on the front end is to make sure we're giving three weight calls uh, on each shot. And then we kind of sit down after the game when we're doing our post-game review. We say, well, how did we deal with that, right? And, you know, if they keep – if you kind of focus on something that's a kind of a, a problem area like that, that helps you get better as a team over, over, the, course of the, over the course of the event even. Lisa, you've been on the World Curling Tour. How much of that applies to those level of teams? How much of that did you experience when you were, when you were curling in Ontario? 
I mean, it's again, I feel like it's a bit of a different, a different universe over there. I'm trying to think back like now it's been probably five years since I was active on the, on the world curling tour. I will say like, um, to echo uh, Jonathan's comment from a, a couple minutes ago is, is um, like, I think regular ice time is really the key. And I, so I think playing as often as you can, as, as Havercroft said, you know, even if it's just half hour uh, at a session, doing that a couple times a week is going to be so much better. And I think, I think with the thinking back to the kind of Canadian world curling tour circuit, it's like, that was the key, you know, you'd meet, you'd meet these uh, competitive teams, you know, maybe once, once every other week or something at, at these WCT events. But you know that in between those, people are going to be on the ice probably three, four times a week at least, um, even if it's just league games, even if it's just um, kind of practices. Like when I was playing competitively, I think I was in two weekly leagues, plus I was coming out in the mornings to throw another couple of times. Um, and so I think it's, it's more about kind of frequency of being on the ice is, is a real benefit if you can get on there regularly. Um, and then I guess the, the drawback being if you – like I, you know, the situation I'm in now, and the situation of of um, a lot of the teams over here, where if you don't quite have the same frequency of practicing and of games, that you have to then make sure that you've got a real plan in place for the times that you do have ice time, that you do have, you know, a competitive match or or something to focus on, that you really have to make sure that that counts. I, I kind of think of it in kind of a couple of phases. So you know, early season. Uh, it's really just kind of getting your ice legs back. And I think that's the, that's the, when I'm coaching, that's the part of the season where I'm focusing most on the technical stuff with the teams I coach. So it's really working on delivery, working on sweeping footwork, working on sweeping technique. Uh, you know, you don't really want to be thinking about technical issues uh, in the middle of a big event, right? I mean, occasionally there's a couple of times we had to kind of deal with little things that come up. Uh, but you know, if with the world junior bees, if we want practice time, we get five minutes of ice at night. So there's not much time to fix issues <laughs> if you're kind of, you know, plus it's already a grind. You're basically, you're, you're playing, you're eating, you're sleeping, wake up, go play two games again. So it's th- those kind of events. There's not much space to fix a technical issue. So you want to try and build as good a delivery as possible and feel as confident with your delivery early in the season. So if you're thinking as a player of making any big changes to your delivery or even little subtle tweaks, it's, it's kind of now is the part of the year to do that. And then, um, you know, then you have a kind of your lead up events, right? So that's kind of the, the bond spilling part of the season. And that's really where you're, you're playing a lot of games and, you know, obviously you're trying to win every game you play, but, you know, Part of the, part of the kind of key, I think, is really also being really reflective after the games, whether you win or lose, about um, you know what can you take away from that game, what did you do right, what did you do wrong, and how can you how can you get better? So that you're, that's, and that's really the part of the season where you're working on team dynamics and strategy sh- issues, and kind of if something pops up in a game like uh, you know you're struggling with your peels or you're struggling with one of your releases, that's really where you go back to your practice session and say, okay, I'm really going to focus in on whatever the problem areas are right now. So, and then kind of getting ramped. I personally, I like kind of easing off before a big event. Like I think, you know, some people kind of really like just throwing a ton of rocks uh, just the week before. And that's kind of one approach, but I kind of think those of those big events uh, where you're kind of playing all week are such a grind that you you want to get a bit of practice in, but you don't want to be like slamming it at the gym and, and burning yourself out. It's, it's good to kind of perhaps cut your practice back a bit. If you're doing that a lot, cut whatever your gym sessions or other stuff down, try to relax, 
uh, just so you're going in calm and rested and have a lot of energy for those events. So that's kind of how, how uh, I structure it for my team. As someone who curls on arena ice and literally has zero uh, practice ice available to me, what of the you know what of this can apply to me, and what do I what do I need to do as I'm getting ready for you know whether it's a bond spiel or looking at arena nationals uh, here in the U.S. Um, what do I need to do to get ready to play in that event when I'm literally only playing in league games? Well, I mean, that's a challenge, right? And I, so, so, you know, I've, I mean, personally, I haven't lived like with, I haven't lived like less than a two hour drive from a curling rink mm-hmm. uh, in a decade now. So <laughs> I, I have sympathy here. Uh, and certainly I kind of know the arena, the arena ice challenge. Um, I think, so I, let me ask you a couple of questions. So how does, how does your selection process work for uh, arena nationals? <sighs> For, for this club, I'm not sure um, because we did not go last year because uh, it was in Salt Lake City and it was just no one could afford to do it. This year, honestly, it's probably going to be if there are four people who are able to go, that's your four people. Okay. So that's like, I mean, that's step one, right? So it's, it's not, so you're not going to have to do any kind of play down in club. Uh, if there's, I mean, if there's two teams looking to go, then we would probably have to play down, but I think it's going to be finding four people who are capable to get to go to or the arena nationals event. Yeah. So I think like the one thing I learned from my years in arena curling is you just have to be resourceful. So, uh, for a team like that, I, I think there's a couple of ways to think about it. So one is how much can that team play together? Just even if it's just in club league games, is it just, are you going to be able to play enter team in the league or is it, you're just going to be four people and go? It's if we had, if we know ahead of time four people that can go, they might be willing to put us on the same team in league. But uh, as it is right now, we do a draft, we do a skips draft uh, Uh before, before the league. So it's kind of spread out to kind of make the teams even. So it's a little tougher. Yeah, so that's that's an interesting challenge. Are you guys going to have one league or two leagues? This uh, year? I'm not. I'm not sure because I don't think we're going to get ice until January. Yeah, uh, and then arenas obviously isn't until May. But so that's yeah. it's five, probably two league cycles. Uh, yeah, to work through between January and May. Um, hopefully, it, honestly, it's going to depend on what the arena gives us in terms of ice time. Uh, once January rolls around, uh, hopefully two leagues, but we'll see. Yeah. So, I mean, part of it's the club structure. So like Dallas, they've won, they've won the men's what, two of the last three years or. Yep. <laughs> so, and, so and they went to the playoffs, at cl- they went to the playoffs at club nationals playing against, yeah. uh, dedicated ice teams. Yeah. I mean, a, they've got very, they've got a lot of kind of expats and kind of ex Minnesotans on that team. So they're already kind of, they got some built in advantages to start off with, but I know that one of the things Dallas did early on is they, they basically shifted to a two league format. So one league they called competitive league and they said, we're going to let form teams go in that. And I'm not sure how they do it these days, but they, they use that league as how they select their arena Nats team. And then, um, they have kind of a skips draft league or some kind of formed league team. So it's a bit more social. So one thing you might want to do is, is go back to your club and say, Hey, can we think about a way to, if we're going to have two leagues, can we think about a way to divide it up. So we have a bit more of a self-formed teams league 
where we can get together with a team and kind of develop. And then um, step two, I'd say, would be, uh, and then have kind of a more recreational one. And then step two, I think you need a team, right? So if, if you're kind of thinking right now, I want to go to Arena Nats, I'd say probably you should start kind of going around your club members and seeing who you can get uh, for a team. We've kind of started. We've kind of started that, uh, and right now there's a few people who are saying, "Yeah, probably," but won't know until we get closer to May whether or not it's possible. I mean, that's just okay. the way. That's just the way it is with with our group, unfortunately. Yeah, and then I say step. So then step two, I think, is can you get out on the road and do a spiel somewhere in the area or two. Yeah, because uh, we do. We have dedicated ice up in D.C. and at Triangle, and then you know Charlotte's about five and a half, six hours away. That's a, that's drivable uh, for us. So yeah, it's definitely possible if we if if our team was able to do that. Yeah, so I I mean I, I'm kind of used to that too, right? I, I mean I've uh, again with the arena curling, it's tough to even get a regular team, but so I kind of fell in. I mean, we were playing together for a while like that, where we we had the wild amigos, but who was in the amigos was a rotating cast of <laughs> yes. characters, right? <laughs> Not exactly competitive, but definitely. Well, we were competitive in some ways other than curling. We're, com- <laughs> we we're definitely competitive outside of curling, but we are, I mean, for arena, for the arena circuit, we were all right. We'd, we'd always win some kind of event, I think. Yeah. yeah. Especially within the club. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that, we, beat, we, beat, I, uh, we beat Nick Myers that one time. We did beat Nick Myers. So <laughs> Lisa, do you know who Nick Myers is or not? Uh, I, I don't, I'm sorry. <laughs> He's kind of a legend of us curling. So his nickname's bling. Uh, and he's, he's kind of, I think he won the U S so the U S has got what's called club championships and, uh, he won the club championships, maybe God, I'm dating myself now, but it was at least eight to 10 years ago. And he's been on this arena nationals team. That's won two of the last three. So it's kind of like in the local area, he was a legend and, uh, we beat him one day. So that yep. was pretty good. That was at, uh, nice, that, well that was at the, it was at the 2012 Dallas bond spiel. So we beat Nick the first game in our second game. Jonathan is like, uh, we're not going to win. And I was like, uh, and I said, well, why is that? He said, you don't know who I'm talking about, but we're playing Sean Grassy. And then later on, I learned who that was, uh, after they destroyed us. <laughs> Did you know Sean Grassy or not? Uh, I'm not going to lie. I don't. I'm sorry. So he, he came down from Winnipeg with his team. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. After they had, uh, what did they win? Oh, no. They finished second in the MCA, and I think he won mixed that year. Yeah, he won the Canadian mixed one nice. year. Yeah. Nice. And then after doing all that, he came down to Dallas and played with someone he knew he knew the uh he knew one of the people from dallas and came down and played them and proceeded to destroy jonathan and i uh in this little texas bond spiel well you know that's that's just how you learn that's that's the best way to learn well going into it it's like i wasn't intimidated because i had no idea who the guy was i'm i had been curling for a year and a half out of oklahoma so i didn't know who he was jonathan did and he was wearing his Safeway jacket from Manitoba Playdowns uh, as he as he annihilated <laughs> <Nice>. us there. <laughs> yes, 
Some good teams out of Manitoba, so there you go. Oh, dear. Do you have any tips for Ryan, Lisa? How do, how do you think he'd approach it, given his his struggles on the arena scene? Well, again, I think you, you, you don't focus on what you don't have. You focus on what you do have, really, and then you try and build something around that. I think, well, again, to again to echo Jonathan, is it's like first thing is you got to figure out who the team is and whether that has to wait a little bit or whenever you get that figured out. Yeah, going to a spiel would be great, but also never underestimate off-ice team bonding. Um, so even <laughs> if you can't curl, I'm being serious, man. Uh, kind I'm, of. I'm, I'm um, laughing at laughing at the off-ice team, Jonathan. Uh, the off-ice team bonding that some of Jonathan and I's teams did back in the day. <laughs> well, you know, occasionally it involves an alcoholic beverage or or something else that's entertaining. But um, getting to know your teammates, especially if it's a, a new group that's never played together. It can I, th- I think it can really actually help. Um, I know for us, the first year that we we got together and, of course, had Victoria overseas, I had played with her back in Canada, but the other two of my teammates had actually never met her. And so we stepped on the ice for the very first time for the English Championships oh, in, wow. I guess that would have been 2017. And it was the first time we'd thrown a rock with her. It was the first time the girls had met her. Um, but what we had done is for the entire probably – three or four months leading up to that, that we knew after, after I had finally twisted Victoria's arm enough that she said, yeah, okay, I'll do it. We basically did this weekly Skype thing where all four of us got together on Skype and we just chatted about stuff, talked about curling, but then also just chatted about, you know, gossip and nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, and after four months of doing that once a week, yeah, it was the first time Victoria had been with us, but at least the other girls knew her and they knew what to expect a bit. And so that kind of helped to break the ice a bit. So I think even if even if you can't get ice time to practice as a group, just get to know the people who you're going to be playing with and, uh, you know, whatever you can. Focus on what you do have, not what you don't have, right? What can you do? That's how, my advice. How tough are those first games? Because I'm sure you all had different ways that you called weight. Um, you know, cause so yeah, cause some people use the numbering system. Some people will say, you know, oh, it's, uh, it's back line, you know, it's hack, it's, you know, it's bumper or yeah. whatever. What, so how, how tough are those games, even getting the communication down to where you're all speaking the same language and how you're calling shots. Yeah, very difficult. And we're still, I don't think quite speaking the same language on some things. Um, we had to kind of have a talk about that. Um, the good thing is because I, I was skipping and because I had played with everybody, at least when I'm calling a shot, I knew how to speak the language of whoever's in the hack. Okay. Um, so for example, for an English player, they might call barrier weight, which would be kind of your, your soft weight takeout. But for a Canadian, they might call that control or they might call it board. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would basically, whoever was sitting in the hack, I'd say, oh, throw barrier or I mean board or whatever. And for that first competition together... We kind of made it work because at least there was some, you know, I could translate a bit. And then um, my, my vice, Sarah, has actually played. She's played in England for a number of years, but she used to play um, in the Czech Republic. And they do things a little bit differently there, too. And they kind of do it in, the way I see it as a weird hybrid between Canadian and uh, UK, just curling things like, you know, split times, for example. Do you take it from the back line or do you take it from the T line? In England, mm-hmm. they take it from the T line. In, in Canada, I've always taken it from the back line. And Sarah from the Czech Republic, she always took it from the back line as well. Um, so little things like that, we all kind of had to figure out where everybody was. And I think we're still, I think now it's just we're all very multilingual. And I think we can all just kind of put it into each other's phrases and we're starting to understand each other because we just don't have enough practice time to really get 
kind of one set of either weight calls or communication signals or anything like that, that um, could possibly work for all of us without actually getting some ice time. Yeah. The other thing, Ryan, I'm not sure if it's possible for you, but is it, I mean, how, so you're not that far from dedicated curling clubs, but one thing you might think of doing is emailing those clubs and seeing if they have coaches there and seeing if you could, with your team, go up one weekend and book a couple of ice sessions and see if the coach would come out and help work with you guys. All right. Yeah. I'm not even, you know, sure. I'm not even sure if I'm going to be one of the people capable of, uh, of participating when uh when we when when they go to arena nationals it all depends on my schedule too yeah um, for sure so it's it's tough but i think that those are there's a lot of like little things you can perhaps do but even even if you ultimately don't end up participating in arena nats i think um you know the, the bond spiel weekend's great but and this I, I hadn't really done this in canada or even the u.s but it's it's a bit of a custom in english curling is they call it the training weekend and I think it's because England actually didn't have any dedicated ice 10, 15 years ago. And so some of the older curlers, if they wanted to curl, they actually would have to go up to Scotland and they wouldn't want to only play in Bondsfield. So they'd actually go up to Scotland and hire ice at a rink for a weekend and got four or five sessions in and just work on stuff. And I think that's something that an arena team could definitely do too. So Yeah, we'll have a few weekends this fall where we take a group down to uh, Triangle Curling Club uh, and try to play on on Sundays, which is something I can actually do in the fall uh, when when Virginia Tech isn't at home. So you talked about going up to Scotland. I guess uh, you had mentioned there was some uh, news when it comes to British curling uh, and English curling. Um, I guess they've announced some of the new... uh, I guess the mixed doubles teams there for British curling. Yeah, no, there's there's a bunch of news. So I was up there, uh, and so I guess from the English perspective, uh, the big news is is that Anna Fowler and Ben Fowler, who are a kind of a brother and sister team, they've just been selected as one of the three mixed doubles squads for this season. You couldn't make it, British curling. Did you get snubbed? I yeah I got I didn't play so, <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of problem one is if you you know somebody said uh, if you want to get picked you better sh- I think it was Anne Swisshelm Silver said that to me once if you want to get picked for the Olympic team you might want to actually think about signing up for playdowns first but anyway, <laughs> it's a bit of a joke I wasn't I wasn't serious at the time but um, you know yeah so they they've uh, they've won. Two of the last three mixed doubles uh, events. I think Ben didn't play last year, but Anna won last year with a different player uh, and the, Tom Yegi. And then two years ago, they had a really good run at the World Mixed Doubles. They ended up finishing eighth, which got England points in the system. And nice. uh, yeah, so, and that's definitely kind of an Olympic event, the best showing an English team's had, had in a while. So, uh, and they both worked really hard at it. Like they both, like the story with the Fowlers is uh, their parents were friends with the rink owner. Uh, when the rink opened, they kind of showed up as like 10, 12 year old kids and started throwing stones. And so they kind of grew up at that rink. Uh, and, you know, for a lot of the English curlers, there's a bit of a chip on their shoulder about the the British chip curling system because it's basically all Scots. Mm-hmm. But, you know, most of the curling's up in Scotland and there's a lot of top Scottish teams. But you know, I think especially as someone who's coaching a lot of the juniors here, it's really nice to be able to point point to Anna and Ben and say, look, they grew up in this exact rank. Uh, they went out and played really hard and, and trained really hard, and they kind of uh, managed to earn their way 
onto the team. And I think it also shows that ultimately, I think sometimes people get kind of uh, a bit stuck up on different selection processes and the politics of different national governing bodies. But at the end of the day, uh, the powers that be, the, the ones that are paid to kind of coach national teams, all they care about is winning medals. And so when they're going to make their selections, they're going to pick people who have a track record of winning medals so that they can keep their jobs. So if, if, if you go out and play hard and train hard and figure out how to kind of work around the obstacles, um, there's certainly a way for you to at least get on, at least get onto the team GB program. And, you know, Anna and Ben probably have a one in three shot now of being the, the British mixed doubles team come, come 2022. So would that be a first for English curling? For you know, the Olympics? No, for no, for yeah. Well, not even for the Olympics, but for I, well, no, I guess Team GB would just be the Olympics. So yeah, it would that would yeah. be a first, right? Yeah, for the Olympics, yeah. There's never been an English curler or an Irish curler uh, in the Olympics, but there's no there's no rinks in Ireland. Uh, one rink in Wales, one rink. Well, I guess two rinks now in England, and 22 rinks up in Scotland. Plus, obviously, Scotland's got a bit of a history with the game, so. <laughs> So I mean, that's the, the big bit of news. I think, um, I mean, there's a, b- a bunch of other little things popped up while I was there. So um, basically British curling, uh, like, like any of these organizations, they, they operate on the quad cycle now, right? So at the end of the Olympics, this is the summer where they kind of review and plan things out. So in addition to selecting new teams this year, uh, they've also opted to um, go in a different direction with the coaching. So Tony Zumak, who was the national head coach for uh, the previous um, previous cycle, I guess his contracts run out. I actually saw him when he was up there and he's got another month to go, but he's, he's not carrying on with them for the next quad. And British Curling's now appointed Dave Murdoch, the 2014 Olympic silver medalist and I think two-time or three-time world champ. Uh they pointed him uh, the new head coach of British curling. And so I actually saw both David and uh, and Tony up there. So a little bit of a change up in the, in the coaching structure too. And then I guess the other bit of news is that, and it's out now. So I, so I can kind of bring that too, is that Eve Muirhead's not going to be playing at the world cup in Beijing because she's rehabbing from a hip surgery over the summer. So um, Eve's team's actually a five person team this year. And uh, I guess the word around the rink was she's probably another month away. So she, she might show up kind of early October in events, but she's still rehabbing at the moment. So they're doing a five, five person team for, uh, for this season and rotating and uh, they'll kind of see how Eve's recovery goes. Oh, so we may not see her until, oh gosh, uh, even after the first couple of, uh, of Grand Slam events too. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, all I was told was that uh, Jennifer Dodds was skipping and uh, they're going four person for the event in Beijing and Eve was still rehabbing. Uh, so I don't have, I, I think, and that's probably as much as they're going to get, as much intel as they're going to give a random guy off the yeah. street, right? So so <laughs> hopefully back in time for Euros. Okay, well, we don't have very much news. I know this is a very... English and British curling heavy episode, but we don't have a whole lot of news over on, on our side of the pond. They, they recorded, uh, here in the U S they recorded, uh, for television, uh, the curling night in America series. Uh, if you want the results, those are on curling zone, but I won't, we won't spoil them here on this, on this little podcast. Um, 
And then most of the most of the high level competitive teams uh, in Canada really aren't going to get into it until the middle of September. I know a lot of the teams are scheduled to play in the Shorty Jenkins Classic. That's when we will get the our first look at Reed Carruthers and Mike McEwen playing together. Uh, that'll probably be the most interesting to see, interesting thing to see in that one. And then that is that's the same weekend as that first World Cup event, which. Uh, currently still don't know how on earth I'll be able to watch it because I haven't seen any television information on that. Although since it's a world cup event, it'll either be on NBC or I'll have to watch it on YouTube. One of the two. Um, but yeah, other than that, not much going on here. The season is underway. A couple of, of, of events have, have happened, but, uh, it, it begins in earnest here in a couple of weeks. Uh, so if you guys uh, don't have anything to add, I think we might uh, be able to get this done in under an hour, which I'm sure a lot of people will be thankful for. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, big thank you, Lisa Farnell, for coming on the podcast with us. And again, Tim England will be at the European Championships playing in the B pool uh, starting November 16th in Estonia. If you are in the U.S. and Canada, you can watch that on YouTube through the World Curling Federation's uh, YouTube page. Uh, Jonathan, I think you had said that it's basically the same thing if you're in England. You have, you watch it the same way, right? It's always YouTube as far as I'm right. aware. Sometimes uh, Eurosport, but mostly YouTube. All right. So that'll be – that's coming up uh, middle of November. Uh, again, thank you to Lisa Farnell uh, and to my co-host, Jonathan Habercroft. Uh, this has been Rocks Across the Pond. You can listen, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, our email address is rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. We love it when you message us there. Uh, you can also find us on SoundCloud and Facebook. So thank you to our guests and to Jonathan. And we will talk to you soon as the curling season gets underway. Never, 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 never,